When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Lintzemar, a philosophy dude who's down for improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv fella, curious about philosophy. We have a very special guest today from the independent film world, director, producer. How would you like to be labeled? Yeah, filmmaker. I think it's pretty good. Filmmaker. Okay. Jack Newell. Joining us Whoa. at the PVI studios. And most importantly, Bill's friend. Well, I- yes. I think most importantly, and I think Mark would agree, <laughs> that finding some different perspectives about improv and philosophy is a good thing. And I think, well, and Jack, the, you tick those boxes for us. And the more we can we can build you up, then the better right. it, it sounds for Bill, that he has famous friends. Absolutely. I, let's not... Yes. Sure. This is all about Bill's self-aggrandizing, <laughs> as usual. I think the subject matter of, of where in this show, the crossroads in which this show lies, I find very interesting. And I think in my film work, I use improvisation as a technique or a tool. And I'm interested in exploring some of the deeper ideas about who are we as humans and all that other junk. So I think this is very interesting. I'm excited to sort of not excited to improvise, but very excited to have the conversation about the philosophical things around it. Okay. But you have improvised before. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, we have had guests who have never improvised before, and they do just fine. I feel yeah. they do just fine. Mark, you think they do okay? I think they do great. I think they're better than the experienced improvisers. <laughs> wow. All right. I hope they're not listening. And I just, <laughs> I, have, uh, I have your IMDB page up, and I was, I'm disappointed that Christmas with Felicity one of your most recent things, is not, in fact, a, uh, a revival of the show Felicity. I know. The Christmas special. Christmas with Felicity special. Where are they now? What is the length of her hair now? Exactly. Yeah, we got a good 45 minutes out of what's the length of her hair now in the 90-minute long movie. Or you would, I guess, if you actually did that movie. And 42 Grams is not the sequel to 21 Grams. Shockingly. I'm really letting you down here, I feel like, Mark. <laughs> Pretty much if something's not a sequel, then I feel like it's it's probably like, why even bother? I mean, if it's a sequel, then it's proven greatness. You get a lot of opportunities, Mark, in the weeks that we negotiated having Jack as a guest to figure out if he was, you know, for real or not. And, you know, going through his IMD page now, it's a little. Why do it ahead of time when you can do it right now? <laughs> well, I think that's the other angle of it is like getting you on the witness stand right now. Right. Is 42 grams a sequel to 21 grams? Yes or no? The answer is no. All right, then. <laughs> I, rest, I rest my case. You're a witness. You said earlier, Mr. Newell, that 42 grams is not a sequel to 21 grams. Is that true? Uh, I don't remember. Wow. Okay. Well. Argumentative. Yeah, I object. Yeah. <laughs> like boring courtroom. <laughs> Man, that courtroom was those those lawyers are really turning it up to 11. But exactly. the subject matter was boring. So your, your various excellences do play into the philosophy theme that I brought to the table, but I don't want to say any more than that. Often when we have a guest, I feel like 
unless I bring the philosophy out right at the beginning, that it's just going to get lost. I'm not going to be able to talk about it. But this one I feel is just, I picked a topic that is so easy to bring up in any context that I would love, Bill, for you to start us on an improv journey here. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. I, I do. I have an improv lesson as well. And this is a, a very technique lesson. They have tacked a little more philosophical, no pun intended, lately. But this is real technique and I'll do it first. But what I need from one of y'all is to private message me with some kind of, could be a, an occupation, could be a, a location, could be a, you know how you might know somebody. It's a very generic context. And I don't use the word context lightly. And I'm going to do something fun with it. I'm going to see if you all can figure it out. All right. Okay. Mark could have gone. He, he's gone kind of fun with it. That's fine. I you think that's a fun job? You try. <laughs> well, no, but it's certainly not mundane. It's certainly not mundane, but that's fine. I love it, Mark. I love it. No, no, no. Stop typing. I can see your fingers typing. We're going to do it. Uh, <laughs> All right. I put cloud fucker as my second suggestion. Okay. Well, you know what? That, that is, uh, <laughs> so you can't use that. I said it out loud. All right. I'll go ahead and start this thing and we'll get this thing, get this thing rolling. I'm sorry. Uh, sirs, do you live? Is this your house here? You fellas live here? This building? Yeah, yeah. Why? Okay, I'm with, I'm with streets and sanitation, and um, I just wanted to say that um, uh, when garbage comes out of your can and it lands in the gutter, it clogs up the drain, and you really should pick that up. All right, just put it in your can. If you notice any trash in the in the gutter, that would be great. Okay. Uh, is it? How do you know it's ours? I mean, well, it's right here. It's right here in front of your house. All right, and my crews come here, and then they say that there was trash clogging the storm drain. All right. You having some kind of bad day? Um, I am fine. I am fine until I heard about, you know, it's everybody's problem. You know, the, the rain, it, it rains everywhere. If you're rich, you're poor. It doesn't matter. It rains everywhere. And that water's got to go somewhere. And that's it. All right. Is this like a parasite kind of situation? Are there, are there people that the storm drains are making their lives? It seems like a pretty minor thing. I'm not sure why you're when reacting my, like this. When my grandfather died. Okay. In a storm drain? It was not in his, sir. That's the only reason why you're reacting like this to a storm drain. Sir, I am trusted by the citizens of this city elected as the streets and sanitation chairperson. Jack, did you vote for this guy? I think I probably did, but I'm going to do a little bit better research on my voting candidates next time. Did he run unopposed? What did he he say? That's the only reason. Are you trying to imply I don't care about streets and sanitation? Clearly, I care. Well, voting is for sucks, so I did not vote for you. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you don't have, well, and you certainly don't have our confidence right now. I would say there or are four thousand nine hundred and sixteen storm drains in this city. All right, every single one of them's got a story. Every single one. This one, in fact, if you read it, this uh, storm drained the great here, as you can see was created in the foundry in Columbus, Ohio. It was installed in the late 50s. This is an all-American storm drain. All right. And I think it deserves a little bit more respect than this Capri Sun packet, which to adults drinking Capri Suns, I don't know what that's about. You don't have to make it personal. Well, you made it personal. You made it personal when you allowed a little bit of trash to overflow your can and land at the storm drain. Well, I think this was a really instructive conversation. We really appreciate What's your name again? I didn't catch your name. Charles Davenport. Hi, Charles. Uh, sorry. I think we got off on the wrong foot. We'll clean up 
Thank we'll you. Clean up. Thank you. I do not. I don't think ha- we will. I don't think we will. Wow. Jack, Jack, you gotta, you gotta take a firm hand with these people. They, they're gonna come in. They're gonna make their demands. They, the bleeding hearts to try to what they're gonna use. Oh, American. This is not American. This is, this is probably some cheap foreign crap. And you're probably some cheap foreign crap. I see the look in your eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure why, what you think you can come around telling me what I can do with my property. The look in my but eyes, really? You can tell. I did not vote and feel like that I didn't have a voice here. This is, this is my domain. And maybe I should get my goddamn shotgun if you don't get off my property right now. First, I'd like you to know that the swale area between the sidewalk and the street is city property. That's A. B. I do not have the authority to cite or arrest in any regard. That does not stop me from writing a very nasty note on this pad of paper with the city's logo on it and leaving it. Look, it's un- okay. We'll clean it up. I'm happy Good. to. I, I'm Thank happy you. Thank to. you. I'm- Thank you. Oh, look, a Capri Sun packet that I have dropped right here next to me on the driveway. Are you going to do? Are oh, you're, are a, you're, you a big you're a big by man. That? You're a big man. You're are a you big man by that. Drinking Capri Suns and dropping them on the driveway. Wow. And I might follow that up with. A beer can, not even in the recycling bin, just on the ground. What do you think about that? Kick a man while he's down, all right? I am leaving, and... Can you just come a little closer and and check out this can? Just come onto my property a few inches? No, no. Above the swale? Above the line <laughs> of the swale? <laughs> you don't think I'd be so foolish as to do that, do you? All right, this is not my first rodeo. All right, okay. I come onto your property, you deck me. All right, that's, that's what's going to happen. I am leaving the moment I finish this strongly written note on City Hall stationery. All right which will, the best I can do, short of a citation. All right, and I'm just... Just for mm. the record, while you're filling that out, I complied. You, you just make sure you're writing it to Mark. To Mark, Mark is the Mark. person okay. who's... Thank you, sir. Thank you. Here. Thank you. Yeah, just you move along. Move along Many now. Move garbages along. and Capri Sun Oh, rappers. my God, is he gone yet? Is he gone yet? Sign. God, that guy is fucking terrifying. Streets his, and his, his Good day. Gaze. Jack, is, is, is he gone? Is he gone? I think, yes, he's walking away what the oh jesus christ i thought for sure we were going why are you poking with him why just just let him write his thing and and just forget about it you don't understand maybe we should wrap this up (laughs) i'm gonna just i don't want to follow the logic of this you made an interesting choice there mark i wanted to see why you were all that was the punchline that was the punchline i don't want to explain it was your interesting choice to be scared when he was gone fair enough i guess i was using that it seemed like there was a little battle over excellences. We started talking about, about Jack's excellence as a director. And, mm-hmm. but yet people come in with their little standards about sequels or what, what not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you were making a very good case for yourself as a character, as someone who is very dedicated to his job, very much in that niche, very much cares, very much deserves to be elected. Mm-hmm. And yet the corresponding what counts as a virtue, as an excellence in one area may not be acknowledged across the board. And so I was setting myself up as a certain kind of badass entirely deceptively, uh-huh. apparently, as the end revealed itself. So I want to just throw this out. Talk more about the improv, though, before I distract us too much. I wrote down three behaviors when someone gave me on the little chat thing, one of the contexts. I picked the behavior that I felt did not belong and I had, I can't say all of them because we might, we might use them again, but I was easy cry. Street sweeper, who's an easy cry. The idea is that we can generate, I want to say absurdity in the broadest sense of the word by taking a behavior and putting it where it doesn't belong or having a situation and deciding what behavior doesn't fit. 
Now, it might be very easy to knee-jerky say, oh, kleptomaniac bank teller, when it's own little built-in joke. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to do that. That's too clever by half. The trick with this, and you'll get a chance to do it, Mark, and if we have time, or if Jack's interested, he can do it as well, but to take a behavior and put it where it doesn't belong, and we can generate some tension or absurdity. And I felt, you, you had told me street sweeper as the context. I'm like, great. Street Sweeper was an easy cry, and I got into it pretty quick. I started crying pretty quick. Maybe I, I could have <laughs> forestalled the crying, but I got into it pretty quick. It was a pre-existing condition cry. It was not even easily provoked. Yeah, perhaps I was just first scene of the day. Uh, so, <laughs> What's interesting, because it made me come up with a whole backstory, and then also made me go off on a really deep, and you probably saw my brain doing this because you guys can see me like, This is a metaphor for America and for Trumpism (laughs) and for the loudest minority ruling everything. And I just sort of built, started building out that whole, I didn't want to do it. It just started happening because you came in with so much. And then Mark, when you went hard and I went like middle ground or whatever, just trying to find a way to, then I started thinking like, what does that say about me? Is I like, am I just letting them roll over us? (laughs) Yeah, that was interesting. No, I think when improv is really doing well. Those kinds of things happen. We start seeing more. We start seeing a picture. We start you know, seeing this environment, and we can't help but wonder what backstories are and what's happening around this, those moments. When it's tepid, we're just simply kind of confused <laughs> and aren't sure what to think of it, aren't sure what to make of it. What am I hearing? What am I seeing? So in your backstory that you were creating, I mean, was I immediately rolling over that, violating that by reacting I was just trying to present a contrast to your accommodation so that there would be a reason for there to be three of us in the scene instead of just two. <laughs> no, I thought it was excellent. I think the more point of views that get defined as early as possible probably allows for everyone else, if it's a three-person scene, to become defined. I mean, isn't that the extension of a strong initiation? Bill came in strong, which then forces someone else to match the strongness. Well, and again, I think you even said strong initiations, points of view. Well, what is a point of view? What is a strong initiation? And I think we all, how do I feel about what's going on right now? That's it. If we know everyone feels about this moment, that's how we really get inside what these characters are. And a character isn't a biography. It's not a IMDB page. The character is how they feel about this moment. And that tells us a lot about who they are. And you guys, very quickly, it wasn't like a dispassionate conversation with the Streets and Sandy guy. It was whoa, what are you doing here? Or like, oh my gosh, I I never, don't think I would ever do that. You know, you had an opinion and a feeling about what was going on. And that tells us more about you than any biographical thumbnail ever could. Yeah, I enjoyed it. If you were directing us, Jack, bring in your director's (laughs) hat, or is that even relevant here as a participant? Do you have to be outside of the... uh... I've listened to some of the shows and I think you're generally talking about improvisation as an art form unto itself, I would say. Would that be accurate? Bill and Mark? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not sure. But that's something we're exploring. That's one of the things I want to, you know, have more like regular actors and, yeah. you know, to what extent, because I often think like as a songwriter, you know, of course, a lot of people improvise, you know, or completely improvised musicians, but being a songwriter is just improvising as you're writing it down. Like you're always inventing is improvising. So it's just a matter of like how much do you then second guess yourself, which I guess the director, you're in a position often, depending on what your directing style is to sort of rethink everything and make everybody do 10 versions of everything. But often there are very improvisational directors. Absolutely. And I think when you're talking about music writing or songwriting, I go to something that a really smart improv guy I know named Bill Arnett once said, 
that can you hook us up with him i'd like to get a smart person like Push that on, on the show yeah if you could get him on the show that i'm just i don't know the sky's the limit but speaking about it and i'm going to butcher it bill so if i do but the idea that even improv a lot of the time i think there's a misconception that it's created from zero and nothing's ever been like it before and nothing will ever be like it again that's part of the like cool but i think you bill you brought up this idea once of like jazz standards where it's like there are songs that are jazz standards and every single time that they're going to play Surrey with a fringe on top, like it's still Surrey with a fringe on top, but they're going to play it their own way. And I don't know if Surrey with a fringe on top is a jazz standard. It probably isn't, but <laughs> I don't know, that's yeah. what I thought of. And where I'm going with this is that when I hear that jazz standard idea, I think about its structure and it's like there's a beginning, there's a middle and there's an end. And part of what's jazz interesting, not to be like the jazz improv guy right now, is watching the choice that they should have made if they're playing the song as is, and what are the choices they're making when they're playing the song as they're playing it. For film, when I think about it, to answer your question, Mark, my chief organizer is what is my structure of my movie and how does this scene fit into the larger movie? But when you're in a scene, you're just trying to, I think, play the emotion, play the relationship, do those things. And so that's how I sort of see it come together. So I guess if I was giving direction on this scene, I would need to know a question there's no answer to, which is how does this fit into the larger narrative? And what do we need to have happen from a character or plot standpoint to further that? Because that's just the nature of the cinematic medium that sort of exists of things that need to happen in movies. We don't know who the star of that scene is, who the star of the movie is. If this is scene one, am I the star or is one of y'all the star? You know, who's the... Maybe yeah. it's an interlocking, this is us, <laughs> uh, continuous elaboration perhaps of our separate lives and how we meet time and again over a period of years. Right. And so I think I've always been interested in trying to make a movie like that, where it's like you just get together and improvise some stuff and then go and edit it and then come back like two years later and keep editing it. And because one of the things that happens in improv, it's the same thing that happens in written films is that time jumps are just sort of inherent in the, the language of these mediums. And we could just time jump on stage, you know, but in film, it's sort of difficult or documentary, it's sort of difficult. The other thing that happens a lot is that people get overly focused in the writing side of things about furthering the narrative. So if the next scene that was going to exist is we need to all then meet at the city hall and it's escalated, let's say, or DS, I don't even know. It doesn't even necessarily matter what the next scene is. Sometimes people get overly focused on this scene, setting up that scene. And I think that's the wrong move. The next scene could be, we're going to all meet at a birthday party. What if that's the next scene? We're actually all related. Like, do we need to know that in this scene for that to work? Or can we just cut to, we have the scene as is, and then we just cut to the next scene. And in that cut, we've actually told a lot of storytelling. We've learned a lot about characters by just seeing that, oh, wow, these people are all now together in this next thing. And then the audience is going to start doing a lot of interesting things too. And they start to engage and start to figure out like, oh, how does this all connect? And what is, who are these to each other? I think sometimes that what next to us, there might be a very obvious thing that jumps into our head. Well, clearly up next is they escalate this to the you know courthouse or something, but that may not be obvious to everybody. And just because it's obvious to you or it's right in front of you, doesn't mean it's the best choice or the only choice. And just because well, it is, doesn't mean it ought to be. Right, Mark? And humans have a narrative bias. I mean, we're going to push towards trying to make it into a narrative. I think that takes a lot of the pressure off of us as creators to try to make the narrative sometimes because the audience is going to do that unless they do it in the wrong way. They take it in the wrong direction. And part of how people are constructing the narrative and figuring out who the protagonist is and who to, who to root for Right. Is this judgment that maybe I think we probably gave enough in that scene for audiences to find both Bill's character and mine despicable in some way? 
uh, Jackson, maybe they don't know quite enough about, but he seemed a pretty reasonable guy. Maybe I'd say he's probably going to be the protagonist. But we don't really know, as you were saying, Jack, without the larger context, whether with my choice at the end, it was at least probably revealed that putting myself as a some sort of Trumpian paragon of bravery was merely an act. But then maybe, you know, and I kind of wanted to leave that. I wanted to end where we were. So that would be unknown. So we wouldn't, if anything, my character started despicable, became more despicable. But maybe there was something interesting going on there. Maybe we are running from the law. Maybe there's some reason for you to focus on this. So I guess that's why I'm focusing on virtues and excellences today. Because I'm kind of wondering about. Here's the transition. How essential that is for the way we make moral judgments, right? That you could just say, well, it's just what you do. I don't really care who you are. In fact, that's the attitude that my character that, you know, sort of get off my lawn, get out of my business. I only care about you insofar as you are doing something that affects me. I'm not necessarily interested. Maybe I have a just a contempt for everybody, but you could take this in a less uh, obnoxious way of. There's no point in judging other people, right? So we only care morally about actions. Whereas there's another whole school of philosophy, this virtue ethics that really is about people make mistakes. You shouldn't be judged by your worst action. Yeah, you know, it's about developing strong character traits that we would find admirable in some way. And somebody who is, so you could use Trump as a good example. A lot of people admire him, think he's very just a powerful individual, even If you think that like, ah, I don't like this thing that he did. I don't like this thing that he did. I guess I want to throw this out to you of what you think, not about Trump. I don't want to talk about Trump anymore. Yeah, Uh, I apologize (laughs) apologize for bringing him up. That's my fault. (laughs) It's an interesting case study for this kind of ethics, because for instance, if you are, if you don't care about the virtues, if you just care about actions and you might say, if somebody is a really clever thief or murderer, that just makes them worse, right? I don't care if they're clever. I don't care if they're a genius. It's if they're an evil genius, then like, no, that's the worst kind of evil. Whereas if you focus on virtues, you could say, yeah, sure, they're doing murderous things. That's bad. I don't like that part. But like, I sure admire this person. I admire Bill's character throwing him his all into being the best street sweeper he can be, even though I think the result might be, you know, some sniveling and annoying characteristics. (laughs) Is it like, oh, that was a really cunning criminal? And their plan was, oh, so intricate. Now I can appreciate the mm-hmm. the clockwork of this plan to rob a bank or, or rob a bunch of old people. Is that what you're saying? Or, and some people say, no, it, that just makes them worse. We shouldn't respect this criminal for this devious, cunning plan. Is being cunning, do we want to consider these virtues in any sense, in themselves? Or do you sure. need the larger context of the scope of their life? Since you brought up thievery, it's like the trope of the honorable thief that happens in Mm -hmm. films a lot. And I think they make them honorable because of that. I think they would argue that the honorableness is what is going to transcend. And then the the thieving part is some sort of almost act of rebellion or some sort of social. There's a social reason why they're doing it, whether they're poor or the health insurance, you know, ran out and fuck the health insurance companies. I mean, that's sort of what they do. There's a film, you know, Hell or High Water, where like, they lost all their money and the bank is going to take it back. So they start robbing and they try to make it in a way where it's like, yeah, they're robbers, but they're doing it in a rigged system sort of thing. And so that doesn't answer what we think, but I think there is a trope that exists. Yeah. The anti-hero. clearly respond to. Yeah. Which would be your, your anti-hero. Han Solo. Well, and I guess that's what I'm kind of focusing on that. Even if you don't have a justification for that, that what they're doing really is bad, you know, breaking bad or whatever your favorite yeah. anti-hero show mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. the reason that we find them compelling to watch I think is arguably because there's some 
virtue. There's something that is cool and impressive about them that mm-hmm. like if they just had that but didn't do the murdering, yeah. you know, or whatever the thing is, like you would still admire that thing. And, and it's that sort of admiration that maybe is at the core of how we relate to each other on a judgmental or moral or something basis, as opposed to just, have you been obeying the laws today? When you put it like that, I think the answer kind of has to come down to, I'm just going to say this and back, I'm going to be able to unsay this later, but it just comes down to, it doesn't necessarily matter what's happening in your heart, actions trumpet, no pun intended. 51% of the vote has to come down to actions. Because I think also on the flip side of it is you can think terrible things and maybe your morals and your ethics are all out of balance or your morals are out of balance, but you're acting ethically. And part of, I think, what happens is when you start to engage with other people, that's where sort of the rubber meets the road, I think. Yeah. If there's some crazy old guy lives down the street, pays his bills, keeps his yard clean, is pleasant, drives within the speed limit, yet when they're home alone and their door is closed... They just write this terrible manifesto that's racist and sexist and like, is that person good or evil? That's right. I was having a conversation with my sister-in-law the other day and she was telling about dating this guy and they were getting on real well. And it was early on and got to a moment in the relationship where they learned a little bit more and it found out that he legitimately believed that like lizard people were controlling things and all that. And although she liked him and she liked like his output and what it was happening, <laughs> it was very much a moment. So this is saying the opposite of what I just said, where she's like, yeah, I think we got to probably be done with this. So I guess it's not as easy as I may be stated, but undoubtedly, just as you said, where the rubber meets the road, we, we've got to have lines that are, is this affecting other people? Are your behaviors and actions affecting other people? And we're so interconnected these days and there's so, it's so easy to affect other people these days that perhaps that line is more challenging. I know, Jack, you are also a history buff and will watch documentaries and read biographies and whatnot. Mark, this is, you know, maybe to you, or at least let us know if this is in the ballpark, what you're going for. Historical reenactors, you got a Civil War reenactor. Is it immoral to want to be a Confederate Civil War reenactor or a German Second World War, you know, reenactor? They've got the talk down. Hey, why are you, why do you want to be a Confederate reenactor? I'm sure they've got an answer ready to go, but is there something inappropriate just on the face of it? Because I've just always admired Robert E. Lee. I mean, he's on so many (laughs) statues. And so that I was hoping, you know, if you, if you had, do you need a Lee for this Saturday's uh, reenactment of the, of the battle of, of whatever battle you're doing? Yeah. Lee was not here. He was, Lee was not present (laughs) at Chickamauga. Uh, But what if he was, don't you think he would have helped? He would have been really helpful. I'm sure as a military mind, that would have been very helpful, but this, he was at this point in history, 400 miles away in Northern Virginia at this time. So I don't think it would be helpful. And my take on Lee is pretty unique. So I have a, a sidekick. Uh, Jack, could you introduce a Lee's uh, sidekick character that you you would be playing in the reenactment? Yeah, I'm uh, Rutherford B. Jays. Not related to Hayes because it's a different last name, just very similar sounding. Okay, who are you two? Honestly, who are well, this is This was organized by the Confederate reenactors of Georgia. And I don't recognize, I know everyone in the, in the club, and I just haven't recognized you two before. We've been doing this internationally at this point, I think. We did a Civil War oh, reenactment yeah. at Gettysburg in Mexico last year that was very well received. Yeah, Venezuela, um, they're really into so many Civil War, American Civil War buffs in Venezuela. You, you're really surprised. We did Bull Run 1 and 2 in Venezuela and standing ovations. So that's who we are. 
And we did also the Lincoln Douglas debates, but we made them the Lee Jays debates. But we yeah. sort of said the same thing that, you know, Michael Douglas and uh, wow. uh, Andrew Lincoln said in those famous debates. Yeah. Okay. I kind of want to call, I kind of want to call BS on that. I, I really do. Uh, again, Lee wasn't here. Lee, Lee was not here. That's actually not proven. He wrote a letter from that location you were saying two days before the battle, and then the same location one day after the battle, you cannot actually say with confidence that he was not here. He could have ridden his horse here. I've got some bad bad news for you. Are you you like playing Lee and Lee's aide-de-camp? Rutherford B. Jays. Rutherford B. Jays. We have a whole thing where we pretend one of the soldiers is at uh-huh. the top of a burning house, and then we we have a, a thing for them to jump in. It's kind of like one of those trampoline things. Like a clown. And, like a clown and, car. Clown firefighters. That's what I you're mean, talking about. I don't about. know yeah. why you degrade it that way. We're, do- we're talking about a, a real historical interaction, reenactment of the kind of thing that would happen. You don't think the houses were on fire during Civil War battles? They All were, the time. They, the well, South was decimated. Yeah. Sherman's March to the Ocean. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, yeah. Well, again, as a someone who was born and raised in Georgia, I have have many forefathers who fought in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. And you mentioned the Battle of Bull Run earlier. That was the Union name for the battle. The Confederates referred to it as the Battle of Manassas. Well, obviously, first and second Manassas. I was trying to speak your language. I was trying to come down to you, <laughs> use words and nomenclature that you would respond to. I would respond. Yeah. Uh, well, because the, okay. the victors create the, the language. Yeah. That's why everybody knows it as Battle of Bull Run yeah. and not Manassas. But we don't consider, see, this is the, the twist is that this you is would twist. consider Bull Run because they're the victors. But we think that Lee and Rutherby BJs actually won the, the whole thing. I am glad you're here and I'm glad you care about history, but this isn't a joke. All right. This is, this is a real thing. And it's hard enough having to convince members of the public and the media why we even need to recreate these battles and why we even need to spend time and energy putting on Confederate uniforms in the name of completeness and representing history. Uh, people have a hard enough time separating the history and the repercussions of the history. And if you, there's a snack bar. If you guys want to go down to the snack bar, you can get some. There's some really good. You know, there's a, there's a great so saying. I'd recommend, that, I'd recommend you just leave. Yeah. That you never want to let the truth get in the way of a good story. That was Ronald Reagan. And I don't know why you'd want to hold the people back from experiencing the undisputed value add that me and my friend here would bring to your show by including Robert E. Lee and Rutherford BJ's into today's reenactment of Chickamauga. Cause we bring one hell of a show. Are you, you going to drive up a little tiny little car, jump out of a tiny little car? Is that what, is that going to happen as well? I mean, I'm not, and I'm not going to tell you. I mean, part okay, of okay. Well, is you, the, you, I thought you laughed and grinned. It's clearly you have a tiny car. They, clearly they didn't have cars back then. I Who mean, it's a guy? tiny little carriage. It's a small I mean, carriage. Yeah. A tiny little, it's a little pony drawn carriage. So Rutherford BJ's is actually from 1960. I'm sorry, 1869. So yes, he is four years in the future or five years in the future, but they still hadn't invented cars yet. They had invented break dancing, which is why so much of our act involves, involves break, break dancing. dancing. Wow. Wow. Okay. We're very, very good. Just like Rutherford E. Lee was. So good. Robert E. Lee and Rutherford. You know, okay. both of those guys. Um, all right. Um, why? I'll put the question to you guys. What, why should the general public take a moment to suspend their moral outrage at the Confederate States of America and the stance they took on slavery? Why should they put that to the side 
to be able to witness this historical reenactment. Because if we include you, all right, you're going to be asked questions by the media, okay? That's going to happen, all right? And I want to know that your heart's in the right place and that you have an understanding. Well, people have to see that even though, yes, there were bad things that were done, the whole thing was based on slavery and slavery was very bad, that these people were fucking awesome. That Robert E. Lee and and his, his sidekick, Rutherford B. J's, that they... Like when they get and they, they do the worm and they start like they do doing the worm, the, the pop, the popping and the locking and people are just like, first, they, they want to learn more about history. They're proud of their culture and they go home, you know, they buy more beer, honestly. So beer. that's, that's really why you want to make sure see that two yeah. rad dudes can do, be a part of something that was morally reprehensible and still be two rad dudes. That is the thing that Southern people today, when they think about their ancestors, like, well, were my ancestors bad? Well, yeah, they were torturing black people and they had slaves, but maybe they could also pop and lock. Maybe they also had virtues and I can still be proud of them for that, even as I do not like the th- bad things they did. First things first, proud is a four-letter word around here. You cannot say Proud or pride, that's, that is, we can't say that. Uh, that will be seized upon. And the second thing I'll say is this. We will take a break in the middle of the battle. Uh, and perhaps if you want to take the field and do your little show, uh, that would be fine. That would be fine. Great. Sure. All right. So it's uh, 1500 for uh, the first 20 mm-hmm. minutes. And then uh, it's uh, 1200 for every... 10 minutes after that, most clients go for the four hour show. So, uh, and then we also do a pass the hat. Yeah. In addition to that, all of the re reenactors here paid to be here. That's you've got the economics entirely inverted. People are paying you money to pretend to be a person who owns slaves. They have to rent the battlefield. We have to get uniforms and equipment. We kind of camp out here overnight. It's period tense, period clothes and period food as well and um oh god yeah you guys have a serious self-esteem problem i mean you're not proud of what you're doing you're not proud of your ancestors you will you'll pay people should pay you to be the reenactors i mean it's so goddamn entertaining maybe you just don't do it right you don't do enough popping and not even enough locking (laughs) hey awesome very fun very fun i was gonna say as that was going on (laughs) I think even the people who are involved in those things, involved in reenactments and things, they get it. I think some people can have an unhealthy fascination with taboo thing, with serial killers, with torture, you know, with that. And I think that unhealthy fascination can extend to Nazis, can extend, extend to some horrible, and I'm not saying unhealthy, like they should be imprisoned, but it's like, we need to just be careful, if that makes sense. Don't worry, I edited most of the racist stuff out of what we just okay. said. <laughs> In the final cut, this whole scene will be about 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also when Jack was like, now I do want to be the improv jazz guy, and then he scatted yeah. for five minutes. Yeah. I took well, that out because we'll that, oh. yeah. that was really <laughs> obscene. I mean, scatting. Is that what you're going for, Mark? Should we separate the person from the actions or should we not? Clear. I think there are definitely in this day and age with social media, and when people are able to fire off tweets, it's very, very easy to, I don't want to say the CC words, but it's very, very easy to not contextualize people's actions when you're limited to the number of characters. You can't really contextualize that. Is that what we're going for here? I feel like even though what you guys were saying that, you know, it comes down to when your actions are affecting other people, like, okay, there's definitely something to that. 
But if you say that's what morality or normativity, you know, what do we admire in other people? What do we aspire to be? All the kind of shoulds that go mm-hmm. into our lives. If it all comes down to that, that makes it very one dimensional and boring. Just like, are you being a good neighbor? Meaning, do you not have loud parties and not get in anybody's way? Mm-hmm. And like, that's all we want out of people is for them to be just small and herd like and not offensive. Or is there something more that we would hope for ourselves and for the people that we want to be around, you know, that would make them actually impressive. And a lot of the things like Picasso or what, you know, name your somebody that seems to have some really impressive features. You probably learn more about them and find out they were dirtbags in some way, like that they were horrible to, you wouldn't want them as your neighbor. Picasso specifically was a terrible human being. Oh yeah. Or Woody Allen or Roman Polanski. Those are just to name some movie people who have been, under the microscope? Hearing you ask that question, Mark, I think as a citizen in this country and as a fellow citizen and as someone who has a neighbor, I, I might say that I would just love people to let us get along. <laughs> but if I'm looking at it from an art point of view or as in a director or a filmmaker point of view, this goes against what my initial statement was is that it doesn't necessarily matter what's going on inside of you, but actions count. I think the most important thing that drives art is intentionality. And so I think intentionality is purely internal and it informs your action taken in this regard. It would be the art you create. And so I think that the intention we would want more from our fellow people. We want that intentionality or we want what's happening on the inside to match with their outside deeds. Yeah. So then I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> well, that's sort of that's a different flavor of, you know, if you've sort of taken an intro ethics course, they might say, well, there's virtue ethics that I've been talking about. There's consequentialism, which actually looks at what do you actually do? In other words, if you're driving drunk and nothing happens, well, then you were just a little negligent. If you're driving drunk and you kill somebody, I mean, you're a murderer. Like, yeah, should th- should those, those two crimes those, be the same? Yes. as opposed, And then the third one is deontology is this focus. It's not even so much on actions as like the action you intend. So Immanuel Kant is the big name in here that like the only thing, he's the guy that is kind of like the very clever murderer, the very uh, crafty thief. Those just make them worse because the only thing that matters is your good intentions, your good will. You're trying to do the right thing which, you know, you're not even just what you're trying to do, but like why you're trying to do it. Are you trying to do it because it'll make you look good? Are you trying to do it because no, that's just the right thing. It's your duty. And that for him determines what makes the best kind of person. But then we get into relativism, right? Relativism, because it's like, who's to say what's the quote unquote right thing? Yeah. And I think I have been, as you know, Mark, painfully utilitarian in all these things. Mm -hmm. It's like, why are those three philosophies why can't they coexist to a degree? Why can't it be a bit of a Venn diagram? Yeah, they're, they're really just three different starting points, three different approaches. Because, yeah. you know, even if you only care about whether people have good intentions, there are certain virtues that they could have that, you know, their strength of character, like yeah. that actually give them the power to have good intentions. And yes, the relativism thing complicates things a lot. I think virtue ethics is maybe the position among those three that's most comfortable with there being multiple ways to be awesome or to be really fucked up that there are people that just like in our first scene where Bill's character was just, you know, right on exactly giving his utmost to be the best kind of street sweeper or caring about his job that he could be. But from another point of view, who's a sniveling, you know, annoying uh, asshole and, wow. and wow, wow, <laughs> that's maybe going too far, but in my, my character's initial point of view and yeah. likewise, what, what we were trying to set up there. No, 
I think believing that there's a certain moral arrogance about mm-hmm. our ability to figure out what's right and wrong in a non controversial way that goes with like, I'm going to judge you based on your actions or I'm going to go judge you based on your motives. And, and usually it's not that hard to figure out though, right? Did you hurt people or not? Right. It seems like that's something we can mostly know. Maybe we disagree about whether the camp that you made your kids go to, to try to reform their behavior from being gay or whatever, you could disagree about whether that was actually helping them or not. But for the most part, you know, hopefully we can, even in a case like that, scientists can tell us, yeah, that's actually pretty messed up. Don't do that to your kid, etc. I have a question for you, Jack. When I was a kid, and certainly Mark and you, you as well, we maybe have a couple of years on you, G.I. Joe and war movies and people, oh, there's so much, they're so violent. As kids are watching these cartoons and they're so violent. This is terrible. Why would we do this to the kids? Now, kids today love superheroes and Star Wars, which I would say is just as violent these superhero movies, it's like literally Thanos was destroyed by punching. I mean, that, that's, you know, all these superheroes, they have to destroyed resor- by clicking. By or click- oh, wait, I'm just saying brush. it's like they have to resort <laughs> to violence. And in fact, superheroes come to that conclusion very quickly. And in fact, it is the people who wish to negotiate who are seen as the weenies mm-hmm. in so many of those movies. Should we have just stayed with war movies? What would be a really interesting bad guy in the MCU would be like the negotiator. And he just, he doesn't want to fight. He just wants to talk and try to further his terrible agenda step by step. I think the violence thing in these movies, I know what you're talking about. It feels like it's um, not what they're actually talking about. I don't, I'm going to sidestep the violence question because all of the movies that you just talked about and all the ones that we're referencing both in our past and our current are like deeply moral. Like they are from the Bible sort of level lessons of like what's good, what's bad. They're hyper simple. Even the ones that claim to be complicated or get into black and white are not. They're hyper simple and they're deeply moralistic. And so the violence comes out of it in a it's an action movie and it's a visual medium. And like, what else? You can talk the guy down like that's no one wants to watch that. That's not the language of cinema. And so I think, you know, I've been really getting into Westerns more. And the more I watch Westerns, the more I think that all of these Avengers movies are just Westerns. They're just they've moved. The, and everyone's like, oh, the Westerns dead. And it's like, I don't think so. The Westerns now endgame. It's like the shootout, the OK Corral or whatever. It's like, you know, yeah, it's the same thing. They're just they're green skin and blue skin and they come from space. But they're structured the exact same. Yeah, there is good, there is evil. Evil is always evil, good is always good. It is okay for good to punch evil as long as we are comfortable that good is good and evil is evil and the outcome will be positive. There's two films and you can definitely cut this part out if you guys want to, but it's (laughs) High Noon, which came out, Gary Cooper, and the point is that he's the sheriff in town and the bad guy is getting off, the guy that he put away is getting off on parole this day and he's coming back into town and he's definitely going to kill Gary Cooper. <laughs> that's the storyline. And basically the whole movie, every 10 minutes, they're cutting back to the clock. That's a famous thing. And that's just waiting for high noon. And the movie is about Gary Cooper going around town and trying to get people to help him. Let's bring law and order. And everyone's like, ah, this guy's bad and he's got too much power and money and like you're whatever. And no one helps him. There's the shootout at the end. And actually, it's terrible because I'm going to forget the name of it. But John Wayne saw this movie and was like, this is awful. (laughs) Interesting, because it has some kind of relative morality, some kind of subjective morality. And he was like, the movie I think we should make is the movie where the, the same plot happens, but he goes around and everyone comes on his side and decides to help him out. And that's what they made. And, they, and I can't remember if it's Red River or if it's Rio Bravo. It's Rio Bravo. Sure. And it's just an interesting. So you could take essentially the same setup 
yeah. and just two wildly different things, but it's watching how people engage with their larger society and watching people and yeah. like the idea that uh, people would turn away and not stand up to the bad guy because they're scared of the repercussions. You know, that's was a bridge too far, which John Wayne <laughs> might also be in a bridge too far for him. And so they ended up making Rio Bravo, which is this movie that's sort of a rah, rah, you know, we all fight together, which is maybe true or false. Yeah. Those could be the two moralities or two ways of seeing morality that perhaps Mark, can you tie those together? <laughs> Land this plane for us, Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking how, you know, the initial question of if they're good guys and bad guys, sort of as a corollary to virtue ethics being comfortable with there being multiple possible ways to be awesome, you know, a certain relativism or at least lack of arrogance, humility regarding knowing what the good is, is just to say that guy's good because he's our guy. You know, of course, movies or old movies, Westerns are not known for their moral subtlety, right? That's sort of been the great thing about newer Westerns, about actually exploring or newer superhero things. Like, wouldn't being the kind of person who goes around punching in the face, wouldn't that make you kind of messed up? So that's the whole point of Watchmen (laughs) and other stuff like that. But yeah, so it is the typical, more propagandist, simplistic take on ethics is in those films, in fact, taking the side of one of the sides and... You know, so of course the Indians or whoever the bad guys are, are just the people from the foreign countries often, (laughs) the terrorists, they're just bad and we'll just show them as bad in every way. And it doesn't matter then what means the hero wields to take them down because we've already established that he's, he's the good guy. He is the hero and we just don't have to argue about these things. Hopefully as filmmakers that are trying to manipulate the audience. We at least have the bad guys senselessly kill someone near the beginning so that you're like, oh, I really hate that guy, uh, even though there might be such badasses when they're facing the, the bad guy. But like, you know, help a little child or something toward, toward the beginning so you can see, oh, actually, I don't have to feel conflicted about this. The hero is not merely the person of my ethnic group that has been designated yeah, yeah. as hero in the story, but they really are morally superior. And did you say something about being mean to animals is like the filmmaker is mm-hmm. like go to or like they're ace in the hole to make someone evil uh (laughs) it's like oh they kicked a dog they deserved everything that's gonna that they're gonna get yeah there was some i can't it came out a couple years ago but someone was like you know it's harder to kill a dog in a movie than a person like in a movie you know yeah yeah. people get killed all the time in movies but when's the last time i mean there's an entire movie franchise built (laughs) on a character whose dog gets murdered and that movie franchise is called john wick and why people connect i think honestly deeply with that movie is because the dog gets killed yeah and then it's pretty easy to just go along for the ride yeah and now john wick can kill tens thousands (laughs) of people because someone killed a dog yeah and it's a bit silly and people sort of know it but it's also there's a deeper thing going on there it works you can't say it doesn't work it's interesting too, mark hearing you so much of it is dependent upon like when do you enter into the story and it's like if you had started that story you're saying where like that innocent person gets killed by our hero. If that's the first thing you see of our hero, that completely changes your experience with who that person is. You might not be so open to them thinking that they're just straight the hero, even if they're doing heroic stuff that mm-hmm. you would feel like, Oh, I don't know about this, but because you start with them seeing them doing either being attacked or they're saving the cat, quote unquote, you all of a sudden imprint on them. It's like, Oh, they're good. And then you're willing to go wherever you, they want to go. Now I need to go watch a bunch of less well-regarded superhero movies, but are they missing that good is good and evil is evil? Are they too, well, maybe this villain, there's, there's some inner tension and the, you know, maybe it's like, 
well, 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 now this is a different movie. This can't be a superhero. This can't be a general population superhero movie. It's like, we got to make sure evil is evil and we can't overthink it. I think that probably would be part of the problem. You know, it's interesting going back to that first scene, Mark, because the way I think about that first scene could even be that the main character of that first scene is none of us. It could be the little girl who's watching this exchange happen. And she's actually the main character of that movie. And that's the thing with film is that the other aspect is how are you using the tools of cinema to tell story? And so in an improv scene or on a radio show, the audience is putting their own close up on who they think is the hero. But in a film, you're doing that. And so to that point, Bill, I think it's a bit dependent on like how are people set up in the audience's mind by the filmmakers. All right. So in post, uh, <laughs> that first scene ended with us uh, uh, being frightened of the law or whatever, looking out at the camera, and then it pulls back and we're little motes in the eye of an innocent girl who is staring. And that is... And then mm-hmm. the, the opening credits start. So this was this whole thing was a was and a the teaser. Oscar goes to <laughs> the director. Yeah, yeah, right. It's Jack's vision. I was just being the cinematographer there to take this back to the improv lesson, Mark. When you came in as the Robert E. Lee impersonator, what was the behavior that you had that didn't fit in the context of Civil War reenactor? Well. I had already forgotten that we were doing <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed. Time. I noticed, Mark. But and I can say that it was having, having so much fun with it, you know, making it a perform. I mean, that, yeah. that was at least where the joke ended up being that we are actually some sort of little circus. This is a solemn moment. This is a solemn yeah. moment. And in fact, I think those Savorian actors have to make sure it is solemn, even if they don't want it to be. They've got to kind of play if this is going to be accepted by the general public or a good chunk of the public, then they do need to jack up the solemnity a little bit. And we can't be making jokes about this. And many of them probably don't want jokes to be made about it, but we can shoehorn the improv lesson in there, I think. Before Jack delivers his verdict on which of these lessons were more powerful, I feel like just my slowness as a learner, you know, it's more as I'm editing it, as I'm going back through it, as the same lesson is hit on in various forms over a couple, then I finally, you know, we had as a past lesson, you have to care. You have to have an emotional reaction. You can't just be sort of puzzling out what's going on with it. You know, so I, that's why I'm coming in yeah. so hot in the first mm-hmm. scene of like, sure, I got to have an attitude right from the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. so it could be that even though your lesson was so glanced off my uh, consciousness that I didn't even remember it when we were starting the second scene, that doesn't mean that I have not learned it and you yeah, know, I it will not plug well, into, uh, you know, the future could, eventual could, could we say that immorality is context dependent is mad max is max moral is he, he is the hero living in this <laughs> wasteland all the heroes in a war movie or something are, are living terrible things and doing terrible things yet we understand that morality in that context is different and does that cloud or confuse things and it's like if you live on a farm you're dealing with death all the time and it's like well, we got too many cats on the farm. We have to go kill some. Like I have had multiple people <laughs> who have grown up on farms have told me stories about like, yeah, we had to kill some of the farm cats because there were just too many of them. Uh, some of the kittens, <laughs> they're each horrible in their own regard. And maybe in the, in the after party and the listener supported portion, uh, we can talk about some of the horrible ways that excess farm cats were disposed of. But, uh, 
Uh, and again, for people, you know, that's, you got to pay for that content. Uh, but uh, <laughs> is that true? To, can we even say it's like, you're talking about the relativism and thing. I mean, isn't that the heart of relativists is like, what world is this that we're talking about? And what are the rules of the, what's the context of this world? For something to be out of place, we have to know the context. Right. Relativism is a complicated enough. It's in the eye of the beholder is kind of what you're sure as opposed to merely context, which it just means that your standard, while it could be an absolute standard, has a lot of circumstances that like, okay, yes. well, in this circumstance, if you're starving, it's okay to do this. And if you're, but now that I've given you those if thans, I believe it all absolutely and is not dependent on the eye of the beholder. So that's related sure. to relativism, but just as far as. You might think that thinking about people's virtues rather than their actions would clear that up because, you know, somebody who is virtuous, who's strong of character, who will in any situation, whatever, if they're in a Mad Max world, they'll do great in that. They'll survive and, you know, eat all the eyeballs or whatever you're supposed to do in the Mad Max world. But in the nice civilized world, they'll also be able to adapt to that and use good judgment. So wisdom sort of is the primary virtue. They don't want to eat eyeballs. They don't want to do those things and they don't want to. But they have to, and we trust that if they were to come to society, that they would stop. That's what you're saying? That's at least an idea. However, you could also say that this whole, you know, what we've been talking about as the relativism built into recognition of relativism that's built into virtue ethics means that there could just be some people that their constitutions are such that they would be counted as virtuous in this kind of environment, but not in that one. So if you are just a hard ass who likes to eat eyeballs then you actually would be virtuous in that crazy world, whereas now we want to lock you up. So I guess it kind of cuts both ways. I don't know if I just made things more confusing, but uh, Jack, you, you're the judge today. You have to decide whether the, the improv lesson or the philosophy lesson is more virtuous, is better in itself, is going to have more of an effect on the world, has the right motives, however you want to think about it. Uh, before I judge, can I ask you a question? Sure. I'm okay with that. Uh, maybe Mark isn't. Mark is the kind of person who doesn't approve of questions. What does that say? What does that say about the man's character? Bill, how do you view improv as an art form? What kind of art form is it? Is it a communication art form? Is it a storytelling art form? Is it a... Uh, <laughs> is it an art form at all? I mean, when does doodling become art? And I think that... I mean, when you're Picasso and you can sell it for $50 million and it ends up <laughs> in a museum. I mean, isn't that art? Oh, boy. Gee whiz. Well, I think that in the there's an intent. I think, and I think there's a number of factors that go into making something art. Just because you can sell it, I don't think that necessarily makes it art. If Picasso knowingly doodles on the back of a napkin, knowing that, and then signs it, knowing that it's going to sell for, you know, 10 grand, I don't think that suddenly makes it, that makes it a collectible, you mm-hmm. know, it's like an NFT, but I don't think that makes it art. And I think a good chunk of improv, we might see it as, I don't want to say entertainment, but like, just people having fun, people just doodling, mm-hmm. you know. I think when it is artistic, I would say it probably is storytelling. But again, storytelling in the way that it can be about the story of people's lives and the story of people's changes in their lives and, and how they view the world. Is that an answer? Wonderful answer. So, okay. Mark, who, who I have to decide who wins how? <laughs> There's no uh, pre-existing standards. You create the standards yourself. We've made this into a sports sort of thing. and It's a thing now. You know, it has uh, no implications as far as you know maybe there's betting among the audience on it that's really what it comes down to and i have to decide sorry if i'm being obtuse i have to decide which lesson wins not necessarily which of us wins but which lesson wins today when you're walking away okay i'm going to give you a standard i'm going to give you a suggested standard when you're walking away from this which thing are you going to think about more Mm -hmm. 
Rutherford BJ's. And why did I say that? No. (laughs) (laughs) You could say Um, that the improv was a more profound experience. That is totally fine. I think the answer for me would be probably the philosophy side of things, trying to take it all and put it into some sort of organization that, you know, we can sort of respond to. I think that's probably what I took, took out of it. That's fine. And in fact, I wish we had talked about this earlier, all those different philosophical notions that Mark mentioned, couldn't we say that the action in many of these movies is the friction between those points of view? Absolutely. I think the most that any of these movies deal with any sort of complexity is in watching the hero struggle with it and then fall clearly on a very moral point of view. So the most that they'll do, even the, even Watchmen or any of these other ones, they'll get into it and it's just like how deeply are they wading into the pool of this, but they, by the end, have scurried yeah. very far out of it. How do we judge morality? Because if we take this point of view, well, then our actions are immoral. But if we take this point of view, then our actions are immoral, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just think about some of the more modern superhero movies, as Mark mentioned, they give, I won't say lip service, but they give time to perhaps both ways of thinking about this problem. And it's, it's more about like, well, which method of thinking do you buy into? And that will tell us what moral is. And, but there's also an acknowledgement of like, yeah, it was kind of a bit of a coin flip there, wasn't it? Or like, yeah, we broke some eggs that time. Well, two things that one is, I think, you know, the enduring people like Darth Vader a lot more than like Luke Skywalker. And like, or the bad guys, like bad guys almost always are more remembered and more popular and all that stuff. And that's interesting in and of itself, because I think it allows you to sort of get into that a little bit more. The other thing I was going to say, and why I was asking how you view improv and what kind of art form it is, and this is, I'm just approaching this as my personal point of view. And and since we started with me talking about setting me up as a filmmaker, that's how I'm sort of viewing everything. And that's also just how I walk through my life, which is too bad for my wife, I guess, because I, all I do is think <laughs> about movies. The problem is Mad Max or any of these things that we brought up is that they aren't, Mad Max doesn't exist. It's always living within the frame of a story. And like the story is always for the audience. And I think that's why I was asking the question about how does improv fit? And if it's a storytelling thing, then whatever. It's just sort of, that's how I look at it. Well, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, I'll tell you what's moral when you tell me the two constructs that are at odds. Mm-hmm. And I'll judge those constructs. And which construct I see to be most sound, well, then that will tell me, you know, we're kind of a step away from morality, if that makes, I don't know, Mark? I just, are we in the list? Enjoy your victory, Mark. Enjoy your victory. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jack. So a pleasure, a real pleasure. Thanks, guys. This was here. interesting. Yeah, thank you. Great fun. All Great right. fun having Th- you. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for listening to Philosophy vs. Improv. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Philosophy vs. Improv feed. You can find links to do that at philosophyimprov.com. We're now in the last few episodes of our season one of this podcast, and I want to again push you to help make season two a reality by supporting us at patreon.com slash philosophy improv. We have recently put up two supporter only discussions between me and Bill and are going to put up more if we get more people signed up. Your support, even at a very small financial level, tells us that you like the show, you want to continue to happen. And as a bonus, you won't have to hear advertisements on episodes if you get the feed through Patreon. So go to the Patreon page or all the ins and outs are explained at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Bankrupt. 
So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 